Yesterday, we introduced you to the history of the meat workers' unions, to the town of Wairoa, and to agribusiness giant Tallies. In 2010, after taking full control of AFCO, a company with several freezing works across New Zealand, had tried to force the unionized staff at Wairoa to sign individual employment agreements, which would have lowered their pay and stripped the long fought for structure of seniority and autonomy away from them. The workers in Wairoa said no, and Tallies shut half of them out of the plant. It was the first lockout. Today, the dispute spreads across the country. It's the meat workers union itself that is starting to fight battles in the courts, really, the employment court, over questions of access to work sites. And that's what really leads to the 2012 lockout, is stalled negotiations, negotiations of access. On the 29th of February 2012, the dispute became national as Tallies issued a lockout notice to 776 of its 1,300 workers at plants across the country. Towns like Morewa, Rangiuru, Fielding and Wairoa, towns which depend on the meatworks for employment and prosperity, were thrown into crisis. I'm in Morewa, an hour north of Whangarei, on the picket lines outside the town's biggest employer, the AFCO Meatworks. More than a hundred of the freezing works employees are themselves being frozen out by AFCO and their majority shareholder, the Tallies Group. And in that 2012 lockout, that's where the company makes its its intentions really clear. And, and you know, you've got that quote there from uh, Hamish Simpson, the AFCO chief executive, and he says, you know, this is a struggle over management control. Management is seeking to draw a line on influence, union influence in the workplace. It's rare, I think, for a company to be so brazen about it. There's usually a financial justification used. But in this case, the company just explicitly said that the aim was to draw the line on union influence. And I think the, the other thing, just to put it in context, is that lockouts are really uh, rare in New Zealand. They have increased since the 70s and have run kind of concurrently with employer power. But, you know, from the 70s to the 90s, the lockout was comprised of between 0 to 2 to 3% of disputes in the 90s. And then throughout the 2000s, it kind of leveled out to 5%. Of disputes and there was a real fight here our union was to me they were ill prepared but who could be prepared for this the national union is thinking that it can it can negotiate an end to the lockout by the time they realize that there needs to be a kind of national campaign that's when simon Usterman and, and helen kelly of the council of the trade unions really gets gets involved helen kelly was the leader of the council of trade unions at the time which is often seen as being the head position of the trade union movement. She sadly died from cancer in October 2016, but Simon, who we spoke to in episode one of series one, was pulled off another job to join the AFCO's tallies dispute. I was working with Local 13, the port workers with the Maritime Union, and it was, it was a pretty big dispute, but uh, we got a call from Helen Kelly that there was a dispute about to start with the meat workers union so it must be pretty serious if uh, Helen wanted to pull me off that dispute to go and do the the meat workers but um you know, we jumped in and it was it was pretty bad because I know Helen Kelly was critical of the union it had kind of a a very old system of organizing I think it didn't have a really good sense of who the members were uh, a really good way of contacting the members 
When the lockout first started, there was a lot of confusion about what was happening. And some people just naturally said, I'm not going to work. But a lot of the union members were like, well, you know, this hasn't happened before. So they just kept going to work. And so we had to have a conversation about how we were going to do this. And there were enough people in most sites that wanted to strike that we could do this. But it's not always going to be a given that, that you, can, you can do that. But the general principle is the quicker you go on strike, the quicker it's over. That's not what actually happened here because Charlie's just held their breath for, what was it, 89 days. But there were a number of people who continued working. And some union members got really fired up and angry about it, as you can imagine, and were, you know, giving them a lot of hell. But And after nearly two months on the outside, tempers are starting to fray. The patience wears a bit thin, so the boys might um, say a few things that they wouldn't normally say. But that's to be expected after seven weeks out, watching people go in and taking what we call our jobs. Ultimately, to win, you need everyone on board. And that's a hard thing, especially when you've got like a history of unionism that goes back over 100 years of, you know, don't scab. But I said to people, look, you know, that culture of unionism is not here anymore. Some of these staff are casual. No one's ever talked to them before. And so we needed to come up with tactics to have a conversation with those people to get them on board. And if you're yelling and swearing at them and calling them cunt, they're not going to, they're probably unlikely to join us. So so we, we had to have that conversation. But I think it's really hard when you've got family members who are working when you're out on the picket. That's why your messaging is just as important internally as externally. If people think you're just striking for extra pay, well, they might not be willing to join you. If they know you're striking because you, you, you're not going to have a job at the end of the season, they're probably more likely going to join you. But we don't necessarily always have a direct line of communication with people who aren't on the picket line. And so we had to work on that. That was something that we had to spend quite a lot of time on. But whatever weakness there was in the National Union, there was a strong organising effort on the ground in, in local workplaces. You know, Wairua workers knew exactly um, who was leading them, where to go. Um, the resource centre was became the, the site of it, the site of organising, uh, the site of kind of creating food packages for families. We were prepared for it. We were like, gotcha, this time we're going to, you know, we're going to do this a little bit better. And we started doing it a little bit better, you know. Um, we knew what, we started recognising what was actually happening to people in finance, so we started catering to that. Pete told me about how he'd been studying what tallies were doing, and he recognised it as union busting, using dirty tricks to try and paint the meat workers' union as the bad guys. One time, tallies lodged a claim at the serious fraud office, alleging that the meat workers' union had misused members' funds. It generated a slew of battle headlines in the media, but it was thrown out almost instantly because there wasn't a single shred of evidence. The freezing worker was the kind of arch villain of the of the trade union movement in the seventies and eighties. There's you know constantly cartoons showing freezing workers, you know, basically thwarting the work of the farmer, you know, the backbone of the economy, and I think it leads to some pretty dramatic episodes. You know, in 1978. During that period of industrial action, farmers in Southland basically take their sheep out to the streets of a small town and slaughter, slaughter them, you know, to, to show their, their disgust or their rage at, at militant freezing workers. 
And it was kind of ironic because part of my work with the Maritime Union was to counter that sort of narrative that the port was trying to play around, you know, this is just a bunch of wharfies who just want to go on strike because of cold meat pies and all that sort of shit. Uh, whereas we were trying to frame it, it was actually about, you know, these kids of the port workers never see their dads or their mums because they're working back-breaking shifts and there's always the threat that they won't come home because it's not a safe job. So the main thing was to establish the narrative correctly that this wasn't greedy meat workers who were wanting to get a pay rise. This was families who were having really basic rights that all New Zealanders take for granted ripped away from them. Conflict's always the most powerful news value. Mm. And so if you want to counter that news value, you've got to have something pretty good. And so it's got to be human interest story. It's got to be present. And you've got to have some really good good, good visuals and good natural speakers. And so that was the first thing I did was go in and find, find that, which is what we did. Mm. And so media, the media strategy actually works very similar to a campaign process. So, you know, you talk about the foundation, the kickoff, the peaks, the peak, and then the resolution. It's actually the same with a story. So you've got to know what the media wants because mm. the way that you frame your message will frame the, the narrative. And so if a union official says, oh, we're not just going on strike because we want money, all that sounds like is we're going on strike for money. So you've got to be very careful about um, what you say. So it's got to be, you know, even if the journalists ask you that question, are you doing this because you want money? You can't just respond to it because that's how it's going to be edited. You've got to focus on what's the message that you want your audience to hear. And you've got to make sure that the news values of that are stronger than the news values of what your opponent's pushing across. The, the way it was presented in the media at the time was always that it was this kind of like, you know, company in the union locking horns and this kind of power struggle, but it was never that equal. And, it, and you know, that's obvious. Tally's locked out which is refuse to allow people to work who want to work half of their workforce. And we'd, I, to this day, I don't know how they actually worked this out, but they ended up splitting families. So you had some people in the family working and some not. And so it was really obvious. We've got to go and find a family that's been broken up by this lockout. You know, and, and the message is actually we want to work, not that we want to go on strike. Because, you know, when you've been locked out, you actually do need to go on strike because you, you can't, if you've got half your workforce locked out and half on strike, uh, half working, then it's just going to delay. You need to bring things to a head. So we had to pull people on strike. But we needed to make sure that we framed it around the lockout first before there was a strike. And most people don't understand what a lockout is. Lockout is just a word unions talk about. And it's, it's obvious to us, but most people haven't got a clue. So you've got to say, we want to work. You know, the boss isn't letting us work. Don't use the word lockout. People don't know what that means. And so, yeah, so we found a family that had been split in half. You know, there was three generations of them affected. Yeah, and so we needed to make sure that they were the people that were at at the first story when the strike started. But it's not about talking to the media matters. It's about telling the right story to the right audience. There was a kind of multi-pronged strategy. There was the workers on the ground fighting the lockout by establishing resource centres, building that local public support. They try to get iwi leaders involved, so they get people like, you know, Sunny Toe in Napui in Northland. He has connections with the Moiriwa Freezing Works. They get people like Naiwi Tumwana in, in Hawke's Bay from Nazika Hanunu. They try to kind of build that kind of leverage against the company. There's also some attempts to ask Māori farmers to boycott the freezing works. Te porotehi, te mahi mō ngā hia marama, Kwa tū ngā whakawhiti kōrero mō ngā utu kaimahi Afkau i te wairoa e karangana te uniana ki ngā kaipāmu Māori. To not send any product to Afkau 
and and that's what that's what I hope they'll do. I'm protecting, trying to protect, and to put value on the work that there are those people. And why do I do? There are people suffering out there, and uh, between 70 to 80 percent of them are our people, particularly against the company that's so dogmatic. I think the one who had strategy actually was the iwi, because the iwi actually forced it together and, and the collective was brought together by the iwi in 2012. The iwi would try to broker things. Mm. And it was actually our man Na Iwi from Kahununu. He'd actually been locked up back in the 80s, or 70s, 70s, sorry. So he knew what it felt like. When, when he found out we were locked up, we had a meeting and they, they bought food parcels and everything. The only one who sort of had a strategy to get back to work was them, and they tried to broker the peace. Because of his act actions, the other Iwis followed suit. There was also this kind of campaign to boycott Tele's products. It was called the Taliban. And it was the attempt to get international unions and organisations on board too. There's a song that people made called the Taliban. And it's really good. I mean, it'd be good to kind of get those clips in the podcast, I thought. As every kind of dispute or lockout is, it really is like a fight over who can, who can last the longest, really. As Simon said, he'd just been pulled off the maritime dispute between MUNS, the Maritime Union of New Zealand, and the ports of Auckland, which was still ongoing. And so with both sets of workers struggling to overcome attacks on their rights, it was an opportunity for some cross-union solidarity which produced one of the most poignant moments in Simon's organising life. Look, it is the dream of any union to have solidarity between disputes. The fact is we actually don't have that many disputes on to have solidarity, but by chance that there was actually two disputes of two unions that actually have historically quite a strong relationship. You know, back in the day, these are two unions that were very militant, they were working together, but the... Um, the rally that you're referring to was probably one of the most beautiful moments I think I've ever had in my whole political career. Uh, political career. Well, I'm talking about political, political life. Uh, we brought the we brought as many meat workers as we could up to the Muns March. The Muns guys came down to support the meat workers and the meat workers went to support them it was beautiful but the but like halfway through it I, I brought the meat workers together I said hey we've got to come to the end of the march together as a group because it's important right you know like a collective experience can live in the mind of a of, of, of an activist or organizer for your whole life and I knew this was like going to be a special moment so I brought them together and you know, they were loving the chanting and stuff on their own picket lines. And I said, let's make this something really special. Brought them together and we marched over the hill. You know, imagine there's a hill where you can just see, you can hear the noise before you see the people. And there's just like this huge block of people wearing their, the black meat workers t-shirts chanting in solidarity. And like we were walking past people and people were crying. Like these growing, wharfy men just like bawling their eyes out. It was, it was special, it was awesome. Yeah, that was cool. Despite all of this though, 
The solidarity in Wairoa was under intense pressure, and the effectiveness of the strategy that had been cobbled together by the union was up for debate. town didn't support us after all. Like I said, when they start yelling at each other off the bridge and that, that's when town support obviously started to, start to waver. That's when it became problematic. Even some of the things, I said, we're going to go down to um, AFCO and, and strike down there. I was like, that's a dumb idea because there's going to be some conflict down there. You're asking for conflict. We don't want a conflict. But if you want support, this is not support. This is abuse. You know, I thought we were smart. I thought we were going to just um, uffy them. You've got to make sure that everything's aligned. And it wasn't, you know, Helen and I and some others were sort of pushing things that weren't necessarily being completely accepted by the union but also they didn't necessarily know what to do and i'm not not dissing the union it was just a, it was a really difficult um situation and you know we couldn't have done stuff if they hadn't let us do it but the main thing that we really needed to to be doing was escalating the pressure on the company and that's what that's what wasn't happening i pressed simon on this because listening back to all of the things that were going on it sounds kind of substantial the attempted boycott the media campaign the efforts to involve maori farmers the iwi support but this is at the heart of the debate about the strategy. We, when you're doing campaigns, you're always trying to find a, a, something new to keep the momentum going. And how much something new is symbolic versus direct leverage is always up in the air. I think that your ability to get an outcome is by putting pressure on all relationships that the decision maker has. So moving beyond industrial muscle versus having additional lev- leverage is sort of what the issue is here. Mm. So uh, I think, you know, obviously involving Māori farmers was really important and it was awesome and it gave a huge boost. And just to be really clear, in some of the pickets, it was the local iwi, or actually the local hapu that, that were really holding the pickets together. Like, it was really amazing. Uh, I've got no doubt about that whatsoever. Uh, bring in Māori farmers who are a step away from your membership. It's, it's a lot more difficult to organise other people and boycotts are not easy things to do you know like because it's morally it's important but you know that's not enough to get to scale you mean to actually financially hurt them yeah 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 so, and i'm saying i no, don't do it i mean obviously you know like if we think about like the lunchroom boycotts in, in nashville i mean they won because they had boycotts but it was part of a you know clear escalating campaign that was planned out and, and this was i mean this was an opportunity that was important and there was certainly lots of support and I thought it was important for putting additional pressure on, but I don't think that ever could have replaced the leverage that we had from not working. Yeah. The issue was um, that there was some hesitancy from the union to escalate our pressure. And you might say, well, how do you escalate going on a strike? You, you do it by stopping production. Being on strike doesn't stop production if there are people still working. We needed to close down one and then more um, uh, of the meatworks, but that didn't happen. There was one final peak in the 2012 campaign that drew an immediate response from Tallies, and it involved Peter, Simon, and a road trip to Motueka. I, I saw them doing all these, these things, and, they, and, I, and, I, and I guess I was right, but you got to remember, Tallies couldn't see anyone. You know, like, yes, we did have... If we were saying, hey, we've got the support of the town of Warrell, and in and, and, and 2012, we did. But um, Tallies can't see that. Then I said, what are we doing on our bridge for anyway? No, like, what do you mean? No, Tallies can't see us here. They can't see this, this shit. He can't see all their pain and all their hurt up there. He can't. He's just sitting in his mansion down south. And they're like, well, what do you reckon? I can go, go strike outside his house. <laughs> if well, it's got jackets, so we don't, we don't know how, how warm or cold it's going to be down there. 
This is a story about a working-class family from Naruwahia and their long journey to visit one of the richest families in New Zealand. It looks like a stadium, <laughs> not a house, not what we're used to. Here they are at home, their mum Melissa, dad Richard, three kids and three grandchildren, all living in a small house on the outskirts of town. Five minutes away is the AFCO Meatworks in Horatu. Richard's worked for the company for 25 years, Melissa for seven. All these years you, you, you've given all your loyalty and all your hard work um, and, and, and then when you're hit with something like this. Angry, yeah. really angry for what they're doing. You know, all we want is a, 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 honest, day, a honest day wages for honest day's work, you know, and what, what, more can you, what more can you ask for, eh? So I use the Mochueka trip um, as an example in training of how to control a narrative because it's a really good example. And so I, I had written up a story of, of what I, wa I thought this should be about. You know, it's genuine. I don't, this is not like manufacturing stuff. Like it was a genuine story, but there was a genuine story that we needed to tell, which was essentially David versus Goliath, essentially, and a contrast between the reality of a life of a meat worker versus the life of the Tally's um, company. You know, we knew that they had one of the most, well, two, I think, of the most expensive houses in New Zealand. And most of our members are living in shitty ex-state housing. You know, these are not high-paid workers, despite what people think. Um, and so, so we created the story, and I put it to both one and three. TV3 took the story and ran with it. So when the union suggested the family join them on a road trip to see their boss, the Tally family, Motueka and Nelson, Melissa and Richard didn't hesitate. We want to let them see what the effect that they're having on us and, and sit, let, with my, all our children, this is who it's affecting. It's not affecting just you know, Nana and Papa. It's affecting my children, my grandchildren, and we want them to see firsthand. Mm. Stand them in front of their house and this is who they're, you know, this is who they're hurting. Are affecting. Yeah. And it, it's beautiful. I mean, you watch the Campbell Live story. It's one of the best union stories I think I've ever seen. But then if you look at the TV1 story, they talk about um, finding drugs on meat, work, meat workers at work and all, and talking to the, the local community of Mochweka about what they thought of yeah, tallies. Right, yeah. But this thing is, I talk this through with people, and I'm not sure people believe me, but like going and talking to the local community about the tallies is a logical story for a journalist to want to do. And so when you're pitching a story, you can't just think, I've got a good story, you've got to think, what are the alternative stories that could be told, and how do I ensure mine is better? And in New Zealand, it's very, very easy to get on the media and to shift the narrative. People think it isn't, but actually it is. You just got to focus on not what you want to hear. You got to focus on what does the journalist want to hear, and how how can you use that to transmit the message the audience needs to hear. And to do that, you need to understand news values and you need to understand narrative. And it's actually really, really simple. But um, but um, it was amazing because Richard and his family were just amazing. And so the story really was about them going down to Mochueka rather than just what we were doing in Mochueka. And so the idea was to go. The family's 1,000 kilometre mission begins in Horatu, where they meet representatives from all eight North Island AFCO clubs. In total, 45 delegates will travel south, representing about 1,500 AFCO workers currently locked out or on strike. It's the family's first trip on the Inter-Islander and first time to the South Island. And so the idea was to go and have a look at these big huge houses and try to face the decision maker, you know, try to talk to the tallies and have them say no to us. 
We're going to go to Peter's house first. Next stop, Motueka. The group's first stop is Peter Talley's house on Motueka Key. What's it like to be here now? Um, I'm excited and, and, and nervous at the same time because don't know what to expect. Minutes, but bro, bro, um, These people have got my back, our, our backs, and, and we've got their backs. If he did come out, what would you say to him? Well, I'll, you know, my, myself, I would take my family up in front of him and, and present my family, my, my, my children, my grandchildren, and say, you know, this is what's happening to us. You're, you're really hurting us. So it makes them look unreasonable. And again, this is not manufactured. This is true. They didn't want to talk to them. But, you know, that's a really good story. Journalists want to see what happens. Are you going to face these workers? But, like, Rich and his family were the case study, you know, and, like, it's as much about him and his story as it is about the context of what we're doing. But, um, you know, and, you know, so as we go down to Mochiweka, you know, the, the, there's the journey from the picket line. This time to Peter Talley's new house on the hill. This one's said to be worth around $45 million and have a shooting range on the front garden. But with the gates tightly locked, the folk from Nauruawaia are more interested in some curious llama. Being distracted by a llama, it was just, you know, it's this beautiful story and, you know, ends up with him at the front of the march. And, like, when you watch the video, you can, you know, it really is about him being quite humble and quiet and, you know, he's laughing and you know, he says... Oh, it's exciting! <laughs> you know, being up front, uh, I'm always in the background. Proud moment? Proud, proud moment, yes. Just hopefully, you know, this message that we're trying to send and we've got our family up front and this is what it's all about. Families, whānau and community. This is, this is gold. You know, it was all him and his family. And then he's leading and it's like, well, why wouldn't you when this is just so unjust? It's just like a story that everyone can relate to. This, these are just hardworking New Zealanders with values that we can all relate to. It was just, it was beautiful. The group's next stop is the big one. And this time there's real tension in the air. You say to them, you're hitting my papa and my nana. They want to go back to work. This is Peter's brother, Michael's house, the man in charge of the Tally's Meatworks division, and by extension, Melissa and Richard's boss. Michael Tally, could you please come out? We'd like to talk to you. And that's where that came from. We ended up in front of their um, house striking. That's basically what broke it. Apart from the Evie trying to come on board, apart from Helen trying to come on board, the one that actually broke it was that, because he rang up to his son or whoever was in, in charge of the meat industry, and he said, hey, you better blah, 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 and then they got resolved real quick. It was also a legal campaign that Peter Cranny took on to basically test the legality of the lockout. All of that comes together to end the 2012 dispute in a kind of marathon series of negotiations um, at a hotel in Auckland. But a collective agreement is signed, so it's not a complete loss, but it is kind of, it's clear that things are unresolved. But in the meantime, the Me Workers Union, the CTU, and those workers on the ground could claim something of a victory. No, no, I didn't feel that way because we still had this boss. You know, um, we didn't know how it was going to roll. They, they just loved firing people for nothing. They wouldn't even listen to you when you try to fight for them. You know, so yeah. You know, never before really had the tellies took on a union and was forced to the negotiating table to resolve the issue in, in that kind of way. Because they were just quite happy to drag this up. They're quite happy to keep us all hungry and drag it up. 
apparently they had themselves a budget of ten mil to get rid of us. There's a witness before the employment authority who basically says that the company see taking penalties for breaches of employment law or taking a hit from lockouts is basically a part of the cost of implementing the strategy of deunionizing the workforce. Okay. I thought it was awesome. I thought it was um, a compliment. You know, we didn't realize they had a budget for it until later on. <laughs> and, you know, and I tell people, and don't you think that's awesome, bro? They got 10 million to get rid of me and you. <laughs> and we're still here, you know, and, and they'll look, oh, yeah, yeah. And they'll pick you up. There's somebody over there getting all upset <laughs> at us, and we're still here. You watch the confidence of your people when you're telling them. Oh my God, that's awesome. So they consider it basically a business expense. And and, and Tallies has got interests in all sorts of other industries, in vegetable production and seafood. Tallies are a really good company. I recommend them to anyone that is interested in deep sea fishing. You get six weeks off for every 12 weeks on that you work. And there's no other job I can think of that you have that much time off. It's well known in the fishing industry that Tallies pay the best. So, you know, they've got other revenue streams. There. I don't know too much about this, and that's something I'd, I'd like to know more about. But again, they're such a secretive company, you can't even really find out this stuff. What happens after that, I think, is that there's a broader political story, which is that it was clear to the tellies that they were expecting kind of a legislative change from the national government under John Key and Bill English, which would remove the duty to conclude collective bargaining. So by 2015, then, the legislation passes and the tallies are, are quick to use it. And that basically allows companies to walk away from collective bargaining or either party to walk away from collective bargaining. And so in 2015, following the expiry of the collective agreement, the company once again starts to offer these IEAs, the Individual Employment Agreements. Oh, 2015. It was better. It was better. They just said, nah. <laughs> they just said, no. You can't come on without an individual agreement. Tomorrow, we move on to 2015, when Tallies comes back a third time to try and crush the union, and why do all workers are the last ones standing? So basically, the union's advice to workers was that workers should sign the IEAs and go back to work. I went to all the sites. And Wairua was easily the one that was most organised and most connected. And us being 75%, I said, yeah, I think we're going to make a stand. And we need more of that, because that's how we will rebuild the, uh, a fighting transformational union movement. They could just say, no, we don't have any union. They don't have to do collective bargaining, and it's over. 